You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Jean. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What Big day of science for us. I know. What a lovely Sunday it is. Spring yeah. has sprung. <laughs> I've heard that phrase about <laughs> ten times this week, but not from Chris KP yet. How are you, buddy? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm going to hold off on that phrase because uh, I figure it's getting more and more valuable. <laughs> he's, he's been hanging out in his cave, so he hadn't actually noticed. No, that's right. Know. Exactly. Um, now, normally we do do news at the start of the show, but today we have uh, a guest who's waiting on the line, Dr. Naomi Mathers, who is uh, the Deputy Chair of the Space Industry Association of Australia, and she's getting on the plane soon. <laughs> so we thought we'd talk to her before she... Uh, what's the word? Boards? Boards. Boards. Before she um, gets a call out that she's late yeah. they need her. <laughs> yeah, let's see if she... Naomi, can you hear us? I can. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, look, thanks so much for making the time. We know, we know you're at the airport, so we'll, um, if there are any announcements calling for, you know... Um, people who haven't boarded yet will uh, will just ignore those. But uh, you're the Deputy Chair at the moment of the Space Industry Association of Australia. Now, this is a relatively new organisation. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, well, the organisation is nearly 30 years old. Oh. So our, new, our new space agency is incredibly new. Oh, that part. Yes, of course. Old. Yep, yep. Tell, tell us about that. I mean, so we were the last OECD country to get a space agency. Is that right? Uh, second last. So we didn't quite make the bottom of the list, but oh. that's not something that we want to aspire oh. to. Was it Iceland that we beat? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good guess, Shane. Yeah, I thought it might have been. I, I thought that might have beaten, beaten us to the post. But um, So can you give us an idea of what, what the space industry is in Australia? Because I, I suppose a lot of people wouldn't think of Australia as a, a country that has a lot to do with space, but we, we spend a huge amount on it, don't we? We do, and in some ways we're both an established space nation and an emerging space nation. Mm-hmm. So we were we were the third nation to launch a satellite from our own territory, and we've been contributing to deep space exploration through the Deep Space Tracking Station in Canberra and using space data for, for decades. But we haven't had what the rest of the world recognises as a, as a national space agency to help us coordinate a lot of that activity and to, to make it easier for our companies to, to be more successful and, and I suppose you're part of that global global economy. Mm. It's interesting. So you, you mentioned we were the third to launch a, a satellite. So I assume that's after the US and, and uh, the USSR at the time. Why, why is it that there hasn't been a lot more interest in terms of Australia as a, a southern hemisphere launch site? I mean, there aren't many politically stable locations where you can do that. No, but it's still, I suppose in the past it's been quite an expensive exercise mm. and so we haven't needed to. We're, we're very good at international collaboration. Um, so in the past we've collaborated with the US and we've collaborated with Europe and, and the Asia-Pacific and we haven't we haven't been able to justify at a political level that, that next step. Mm. But I think the, the, the demand for, for space services is increasing and so I think that's, that's shifted. How much... Do you think the sort of move into some of these um, you know, microsatellites and so forth will change the game for us? Because in the past, it's always been very large rockets required to, to do these sorts of launches. But as these things are getting smaller and lighter and more innovative, I assume that there is more options for Australia to be involved. Is that right? 
Most definitely. And that's been the big game changer. I think there's there's two big game changers. One is that the technology is getting smaller and cheaper, so it's now within our price bracket. Um, the, the second one is that the, the demand is increasing, so so we can then, we, we need more access to, the, to these services. So again, it's a demand type, type issue. So our, our farmers, our miners, um, all the aviation services all need access to, to this data. Mm. And, and so the, all of a sudden, uh, the possibility of launching from Australia becomes a reality, um, but also still partnering with those international organisations. We still need access to the large satellites as well. Mm. Um, so a bit of both. Naomi, it's Chris KP here. Um, the, look, traditionally, especially in Australia, the, the base industry has been mainly, I guess, funded and directed by, by government agencies, but we're seeing more and more that that's shifting uh, to, to the private enterprise. To what extent is that balance um, going to make a difference? Oh, that's a huge difference. Uh, I think it was 2014 in the global market. It was the first time that the private spending outstripped government spending. Right. And I think that's really where the shift has happened in Australia as well, because all of a sudden this is a commercial opportunity. Um, so we can we can look at there's companies looking at building, um, so doing the technology development, but also the use of the data, the, the Earth observation data, positioning data, so the GPS, um, as well as the satellite communications. So there's 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 business opportunities. Yeah. Naomi, it's Jen. I'm just really interested to hear, given this shift that I personally wasn't really aware of, what are some of the exciting new things that are you know, on the horizon? What, what can we expect to hear and, and see in the, in the coming years? Um, probably a huge variety of activities, but one of the areas where Australia is very strong is because of our very large um, land mass in the Southern Hemisphere. We're, we're very popular for ground stations, mm. but also the monitoring of space debris. So that's a, a big emerging area where space is becoming quite congested. And if, <laughs> if the debris takes out those satellites, we lose access to our GPS and our communications. So Australia, uh, a lot of it's been through the development of, of astronomy as well, the astronomy telescopes. We're very good at, at monitoring the debris, tracking it, and we're actually developing technologies to, to remove the small pieces of debris from orbit. So this is something that we, we're, we're world-leading in. Mm, tell us about that. Is this big lasers shooting things down? Um, I, 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 they don't like using that term. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we, we'll, we'll, we, we, we encourage things to deorbit. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> deadly, controlled. Um, when, you, when you talk about lasers shooting things down, the, the military gets nervous. Yeah. Um, but yes, in Canberra and over in Western Australia, there's there's two two laser. They call them laser ranging telescopes, mm. um, and they are definitely first of all tracking the debris, predicting where it's going to be, and be able to give a warning to, to satellites to get out of the way. Um, but then also using those lasers to to slow small pieces of debris down and either move them out of the way or or deorbit them much faster mm. and clean up. So we're big big space junk removal service. Yep, watch out if you're flying over Australia. We'll, we'll do it to you whether you like it or not. Um, Naomi, give us a bit of an idea of the, the new agency, though. How is it funded and how many people are sort of involved in, in the agency itself? So it's still quite a, a new entity. It's, it's a, only quite a small group by government standards. I think there's about 20-odd people in the agency mm-hmm. at the moment. They're, they're still finding their feet. Um, and I think what's really exciting for Australia is um, rather than starting with a large government bureaucracy, from the beginning they've said that this is industry-focused, that yep. they're talking about themselves as almost being a space startup. 
Um, and, and so there's, there's going to be there's ob- obligations on a government agency from a, to do to manage the regulation, but there's also then I think which is quite exciting to, to uh, have programs that make it easier for companies to, to join this this industry, not just large government bureaucracies and services. Mm. Look, Naomi, this sounds fascinating. It's great to see that Australia is, is on, on the map with this. And I know we've been, you know, our, our export spend on this over the years has been, you know, most people wouldn't realise, is in the many billions of dollars. So it's great that it sounds like it's being coordinated in the, at least starting to be coordinated in an effective way. Um, what, what's on the radar for you personally with all this over the next coming few years? Because you've been so involved for the last couple of decades. Um, Ironically, I've I've actually just um, joined the International Centre for Complex Project Management, which doesn't sound very spacey at all. (laughs) But to me, I think the exciting thing is it's about um, the the space industry is becoming mainstream. This is becoming just another, like aviation or or mining or other um, large complex industries. So I'm looking forward to to being able to, first of all, um, have buy more Australian, so Mm -hmm. buy Australian made from a technology point of view, but to get that, that technology into into global markets as well. So this is a, a big, these are big complex projects, which is, that's, that's the bit that excites me. Yeah. Sounds great. I'd like to see some stickers on satellites that say Australian <laughs> launched. Get bumper stickers going. Yeah, that'd be cool. There are four Australian satellites in orbit as we speak, and yeah. they have Australian stickers on them. Oh, great. That's <laughs> fantastic. Naomi, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck uh, getting your flight. I know it's coming up, and um, hopefully we'll chat to you again sometime in the future. Thanks very much, Shane. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. There we go. Dr. Naomi Mathers there. Uh, she was in uh, town for the Astrolite Festival last night at Science Works, which I think went off uh, beautifully, given that it didn't rain. Um, and it was a nice night. So, uh, oh, it was the most perfect yeah, weather for it. I was yeah, so happy nice, for him. Fantastic. <laughs> because they've had, a, they've had a couple where it's been yeah. a bit, a few clouds, but last night was um, was gorgeous and it wasn't freezing cold. Yeah. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in a moment. Uh, to continue the space thing, we're going to be talking to Rachel Livermore from the University of Melbourne who uh, came out here to do some work on the James Webb Telescope, uh, which will be going up one day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll that talk, being the operative yeah, word. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to Rachel about that. So uh, hang in there. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 R In the studio with us now is Dr. Rachel Livermore. She is an ARC DECRA fellow from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne. Rachel, welcome to R. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for coming in. Now, you've been in Melbourne for about a, just over a year? Uh, yeah, just a year. I moved here from the University of Texas about a year ago. All right, I'm going to get you just to lean a little bit closer, Mike. Thank you. Um, University of Texas. Yes, that's yeah. right. You don't sound like a Texan. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I'm not quite hearing it. You know, but when I lived there, I had so much fun telling people I was from Texas. Texas. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm originally from England. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Um, now, tell us a bit about your work because you, you came out here with, you know, working specifically towards the, the launch of the James Webb Telescope, which, as we know, keeps getting delayed. So, I mean, what, what's, what's happening there? Yeah, it's been frustrating. So I came over a year ago with the expectation that the James Webb Space Telescope would be launching right about now. Mm. 
Um, I work on very distant galaxies, so yep. galaxies far enough away that we're seeing them when the universe was very, very young, which is exactly what James Webb is built to do. Yeah. Back to about 200 million years after the Big Bang, is that yes, right? Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, round about that, yeah, I got so that number right? Yeah. We can currently do, depending on who you believe, somewhere between five and 700 million years after the yep. Big Bang with Hubble. And then James Webb will be able to push back much further, maybe even to the very first galaxies to have formed after yeah. the Big Bang which will be fantastic, and mm. that's why I got a bunch of money from the ARC to come <laughs> over here and do this. Um, sadly, no telescope. Yeah, that's so in, in terms of the delays, I mean, this is more political than scientific problems causing that. Is that, is that right? Um, it's technical. Keep, it's technical? Yeah, it's mostly been the contractor that was right. employed to build the thing. They gave a lot of promises when they got the contract of, oh, we know how to do this, but we can't mm. tell you how we know because it's classified. <laughs> right. And now their excuses are all, oh, we've never done this before. It's brand new. Yeah. So it's... It's frustrating. Yeah. And the, the James Webb, I mean, I, I think we've, we've talked about this a lot on air before, but it, it's one of those um, amazing things where, unlike Hubble, which is in relatively low Earth orbit, we're putting this at a Lagrange point, right? I mean, do you want yeah. to talk through what this means for people? I've, I've done it before, but it's going to come better from you, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, of course. So the main difference between James Webb and Hubble is Hubble looks mostly in the optical range of the spectrum. James Webb is going to be in the infrared. Infrared, of course, is what we feel as heat. So mm. you have to be very, very careful to keep it cold. Uh, one way you can do that is with a liquid coolant that obviously limits your lifespan, um, but there have been telescopes that have done that. The way James Webb is going to do it is with a big sun shield. Mm. So we put it to the second Lagrange point because this is a point further out away from the sun than Earth where it keeps the Earth and the sun in the same direction at all times. So it's basically the same orbital period as the Earth, but staying behind the Earth from the sun's mm. point of view. So it can point the sun shield in one direction and keep itself cold all the time. The problem is that's a million miles away. Mm. Um, so <laughs> No servicing? Yeah, so if we have any problems like we did with Hubble, yeah. you can't just send astronauts up to fix it, which is why it is really important that it's being kept on the ground, that everything's being done properly, so that when it launches, it will actually work. Yeah. In terms of um, the infrared part, is is that specifically because the sorts of galaxies and so forth you're looking at that are so far away have had all their frequencies shifted, redshifted into that range? Is that why we're building it in, in to work in that range? Is that the, the point? Um, yes. That's, I mean, there's a few science drivers, but the one that I'm interested in is um, you don't really get any light out of galaxies um, bluer than the ultraviolet mm. uh, because it interacts with hydrogen, which is sitting everywhere in the universe and gets absorbed. So you get a little bit of ultraviolet and optical light and then redder than that. And as you go further and further away, all of this has been redshifted. So what started off as ultraviolet light, we're now seeing in the near-infrared. Mm. And that's why we've hit our limit with Hubble. Hubble goes a little bit into the near-infrared, and that gets us our most distant galaxies. But if we want to go further away, we need to look further into the infrared, which becomes a lot more difficult. Mm. In, in terms of the, the sort of knowledge we have of that, that epoch of time, you know, around the you know, couple hundred million years after the Big Bang. I mean, what, what do we know about the environment at that point? I mean, you, you're talking about looking at all the galaxies or, you know, the, the earliest galaxies. I mean, that seems really soon after the Big Bang in terms of time yeah. frames of the universe. And what's really interesting is the universe underwent a massive transformation right at that time that we call the Epoch of Reionization, mm. um, where after everything's cooled down after the Big Bang, you get hydrogen atoms, so a proton and an electron together, and then at some point, all the protons and electrons separated, so the hydrogen is ionized. And we think that happened because the first stars and galaxies formed and were pouring out energy that ionized all the hydrogen sitting around in the universe. But we've never seen those galaxies. Mm. So, 
and this is what we're trying to do. Um, part of my job is to figure out are there enough galaxies to have done that? And that's, it's not at all clear that that's true. Well, one of the things I've always found fascinating with this is what direction do you look in? Mm. Like, like you've, you've got this thing up there. Um, what, you know, the universe is so vast, but of course this is when the universe was a different size and, and so forth. I mean, what direction, how do you know what direction to look in to find these old galaxies? So the great thing about doing very distant galaxies is it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> you, if you <laughs> want to look at a blank bit of space, so ideally out of the plane of the galaxy because there's a lot of dust and yep. things in yep. the galaxy... And you don't want to be close to any bright stars along the line of sight. So you just pick a very dark blank bit of sky and stare at it for a really, 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 really <laughs> long time. And if you look long enough, it turns out fake galaxies are super common. Right. So any blank bit of sky, if you look long enough, get enough light, you're going to find all these very faint, very early galaxies. Yeah, wow. That's so cool. As, as an aside, which may or may not be related, um, <laughs> and I apologise either way, actually. Um, so when, so when, when the universe starts to happen and space is being created and it's, it's presumably expanding out in roughly the same direction in every, in every, every direction, I suppose, wh- where is Earth in that? <laughs> Oh, so is this a, like, where did the Big Bang happen? No, 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 where we ended up. Are we, I mean, because I mean, Shane's yeah. just like, where do you look right. for, for that point, I suppose, I guess, or, or where, where is the most matter or the oldest matter? I'm thinking, well, where are we in relation to... Chris the, wants to know if we're on the right side or the yeah. left side yeah. of, the, of the universe. Yeah. We, we're guessing we're not in the middle, right? I'm assuming we're not in the middle, yes. <laughs> well... It might just so, be a bad question. <laughs> we are definitely not in the centre of the universe. I mean, okay, it's extremely unlikely, statistically, yeah. that we're in the centre of the universe. But we are, by definition, in the centre of the observable universe. Right. Because... Mm. Um, Ooh, that's a very good point. Uh, yeah, that's nice. As you look further away from Earth, you're seeing further and further back in time. So our limitation to how far away we can see is how far back in time can you look and there's still stuff. If you get too close to the Big Bang, there's no more stuff. So that's our limit. And we can see that same distance in every direction. So by that definition, we're the centre. Yeah, Chris, Chris is, Chris is uh, he's just been updated because for several thousands of years, he's believed we were the centre of the universe. Not we, me. You, yeah. <laughs> so, Rachel, in terms of the, um, the, the way in which this, this craft will work, how, how sort of, uh, you know, remote control or per se is, I mean, how much, like what, what sort of um, data processing that happens on the craft versus what happens on Earth? I mean, does a lot of it get processed up there on the James Webb or, or is it sort of a live stream of data? How, how, how does that work on this one? Um, the, the data all gets sent back in its raw form mm-hmm. back down to Earth. Um, so this is another reason to send it to the second Lagrange point is that it's far enough away from Earth that it's not feeling too much heat, but it's close yep. enough it can st- keep sending us all the data. Yep. So the data all goes down to a computer in Baltimore and um, there are people there who do some of the high level um, reduction and then we FTP it to our computers here mm. in Melbourne. Mm. And the, the company, I mean, I don't want to give this company that's making it too much, uh, you know, leeway, but how that, I always wondered, you know, I've seen these rockets take off. How the hell do they manage to get something as precisely manufactured as something like James Webb onto something that vibrates like a bloody freight train? Bubble wrap. And actually, is a bubble wrap? <laughs> sure. But, you know, and, and get it up. I mean, how, how, did, how do they actually go about that? It just seems incredible to me that you can get such a precise precise instrument, instrument up into space? Well, the current problem is they can't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, so one problem we have with James Webb is it's really, really big, which is yeah. why it's going to be really yeah. cool. So not only does it have to go in this rocket, it has to be folded up. Right. And then when it gets into space, magic has to happen and it has to undo all its origami 
completely automated Perfectly. on its own. Mm. Um, and all of the mechanisms required to do that have to have survived this incredibly violent launch. Yeah. And this, they test this, they, they do these shake tests to simulate all the stresses of launch, and this is what it failed. I saw at the so. moment, it's just all coming apart. Right, yeah, there are literally <laughs> bolts flying off. Oh, wow. It's, it's yeah, a little bit terrifying. Because yeah. I think people forget, you know, like, once you're out of the atmosphere, or, you know, the atmosphere is thin enough that there's no sort of compressive forces on the top of the rocket, everything, everything calms down. Mm. But for that first, what, minute of launch, it's just hostile. Like it, it is literally a bomb. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's a bit terrifying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I think I've got two questions. One is, you know, do you have, is there good news on the horizon? Do you have any idea how long you're going to have to keep waiting for? And two, can you start, you know, can you still be working on the questions you're interested in while you're waiting? Or are you kind of, you know, I assume you're not just twiddling your thumbs. Um, yeah, so obviously there's a lot of very smart people working on this problem. And I have every confidence it will work. And because it's so important that it does work, I'm glad they're recognising the problems now and mm. fixing them. Um, and you have to remember that, the Hubble Space Telescope faced a lot of delays. Mm. A lot of them were external, caused by the Challenger disaster. Um, but also, even when it got into space, it didn't work. So it was several mm. years after the launch by the time we actually had a working telescope. And so I like to think of it as it's going through those same teething problems, but it's going through them on the ground yep. before we get up. Mm. So it will work eventually. Um, what was the second question? No, we're not twiddling our thumbs. <laughs> um, luckily, the Hubble Space Telescope is still up there. It's still producing amazing science. And so there's a lot more we can do to drill down into that data to make sure we're absolutely prepared um, for when we have access to James Webb. Yeah. Well, Look, we'll cross our fingers for you that it happens mm. sooner rather than later. Yeah, and, and in terms of, um, like, in the in the sort of infrared region, I mean, what, what about the ground-based telescopes? I mean, how much can they get you? Because some of them are huge these days. Yeah, yeah and there's actually some incredible technology called adaptive optics that means you can correct the effect of the atmosphere and get um, mm. pictures from the ground that are better than the ones in space. Um, the problem is they're not as sensitive because the light has still had to go through the atmosphere. Um, and also, once you get into the infrared, you very quickly get into a regime where the atmosphere is blocking the light. Right. Um, there's a couple of small windows where the light gets through and the rest of it gets blocked. So the things that we want to do to look at these very, very distant galaxies, it's literally impossible to do from the ground. Mm. So when you were first coming through, I mean, what, what made you choose, you know, galaxies that are so so old, you know, that we're going to build this whole new telescope to, I mean it seems to me like you know it's such I mean it's such new science but it's that that fringe stuff where it's really it's high risk high reward but it's high risk I mean was this always the area you wanted to get into or did you start somewhere else um well it kind of happened by accident like a lot of these things do but I always wanted to do something that was at the frontier and finding the things that are the furthest away the furthest back in time I mean, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. So I, think, yeah. I think Shane was just worried that maybe it was a hipster thing. You're after vintage. That's a much better answer. I liked the universe before it was cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. That's right yeah. <laughs> but but there's, um, there's, there's a whole range of objects that seem to be observable in, in this area, earlier sort of period that we, you know, terms that we just haven't heard until the last sort of decade, which seemed really interesting to me, you know, these, these new types of objects that we're looking at and just going, what is that? You know, and there seems to be something every other week. Yeah, and one thing that's really cool is every time we have a new um, piece of technology that allows us to observe the universe in a different way, we do all the things we set out to do, but we find things that we never would have thought to mm. expect. 
And so I'm sure that will happen with James Webb as well. Yeah. No, look, it, it's fascinating. And look, I'm giving a talk at uh, a school tomorrow in astronomy, and I've just managed to get all yeah. the material I need. <laughs> That's so why I'm asking all these questions. Um, it, it's fantastic stuff. Is, is there a current um, projected guess as to when James Webb will go up at this point? Or So the current official date is end of March 2021. Wow. I'm not going to stake my house on it. Yeah. So. <laughs> that seems like a way off. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's shortly after we get to Mars. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. I'm sure that would be delayed as well. I'm, I'm thinking of running a book on which one happens first right. because, you know, like I've got a book at home, a book literally that says, you know, by the mid-1990s we'll be wandering around the Mars. Um, <laughs> I'm going to find the author of that book, hunt them down. But, uh, look, hopefully uh, hopefully this will happen. We've been talking about the James Webb for I think probably a decade now on the show, so it'd be great if it, it does eventually get up, especially when you look back at the last 20 years of Hubble and just the amount of science that's come out of that. It's just transformational so mm. presumably james webb will do the same oh yeah it will be transformational but you know if you want something a little bit more achievable and closer to home um we do have a project ongoing right now trying to build australia's very first mm. space telescope um it's called skyhopper yep the logo features a kangaroo and <laughs> um, this is it's a cubesat so it's much much smaller than james webb but that makes it much cheaper and you can still do amazing science. This is going to be designed to find planets around other stars and also to very quickly follow up on gamma ray bursts, which are the most explosive explosions mm. <laughs> in the universe. Yeah. Um, and you're crowdfunding for part of this? Yes. Um, yep. We are one of the first projects in the University of Melbourne's new crowdfunding platform, um, just launched on Thursday. If you go to tinyurl.com slash skyhopper, um, you can donate and give students the opportunity to work on a real live spacecraft. Yeah, sounds great. It's awesome. Um, I think it's it's good too that, uh, as you say, the, the the nearby planets and so forth is something that you know. I, I remember the days when we were on this show and we got really excited because there was one star around which they'd found. A super, a super gas giant, mm. you know, that travelled around its star like three times a minute or some ridiculous, you know, like no way anyone's living there. Um, and now it seems as though it doesn't matter where you look. It, I mean, it seems almost unusual to find a star that doesn't have planets yeah, I mean, around. I remember as an undergraduate um, taking physics classes and being taught that maybe a quarter of stars yeah. had planets. Wow. And now wow. we think basically every star. Every star, planets. yeah. And, and when you think back of it now, I often think, well, why wouldn't you think that? I mean, when you think of the way stars are formed, why wouldn't you think? Yeah, it would be weird. It'd be to weird have not any. to have them. It's like yeah. the leftover bits you didn't use. <laughs> well, you know, so, unless someone came in and cleaned them up, why wouldn't they form <laughs> some sorts of bodies? Well, of you have type? to remember that most stars form in binary systems. Yeah, so true. our sun is unusual that it doesn't have a companion, and then the orbits get very weird. So it's, it's yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I was looking up uh, the latest number for. Jupiter the other day of 79 moons. And I was like, there's still 26 they haven't even named. IAU, it's a great get trivia on it. question, that one. It's a great trivia it question. Changes, it changes, it changes every year. <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> I think more often than every year. Yeah, well, yeah. Rachel, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Uh, good luck with the work. Hopefully the Hubble, uh, the Hubble, the James <laughs> Webb will be up there uh, soon and uh, that you know, ex-NASA administrator will finally get a, a craft named after him. But um, yeah, uh, thanks so much for chatting. All right, thanks for having me. Dr. Rachel Livermore is an ARC Decker Fellow from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne. We're going to play some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in the moment with another guest on the phone. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3RRR. We have our next guest on the line now. It's uh, Professor Anne Steinman. She is a Professor and Chair of Sustainable Cities and Professor of Civil Engineering from the Department of Infrastructure and Engineering at the University of Melbourne. And welcome to RRR. Thank you so much. Now, you, you work on indoor air quality at the university and you've done some particular work on how green buildings fare in this uh, scenario. Could, can you give us a bit of an idea of what sort of things you look at there in terms of the air quality? Yes, exactly. Well, what our audience should know is that we spend more than 90% of our time indoors. And most of our exposure to hazardous pollutants also occurs indoors. Mm. So I've done studies of our indoor environment to see what we're being exposed to. And the primary sources of pollutants are building materials, especially in new and renovated buildings, and everyday consumer products, especially fragrance consumer products like air fresheners, cleaning supplies, personal care products. Now, I did a study of indoor air quality at the university, and I found that some of the highest levels of hazardous pollutants were in the green building and in newly renovated buildings. And what I've discovered is that green may be good for energy efficiency, but doesn't necessarily promote good indoor air quality. So that's what my research is looking at now, it ways to make buildings both environmentally friendly and energy efficient as well as healthy for the people inside them. So and what specifically are the building materials that are causing these these sorts of problem emissions? I mean, can, I, I can imagine certain epoxies and glues and so forth would be up there on the list, but what, 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 is, what is it that's actually, what are you detecting? I mean, what's it coming from? Well, absolutely. Well, it's a range of different products. So manufactured wood products can emit formaldehyde. So you have furnishings and coatings and sealants, as well as carpets and paint. So there's numerous sources indoors in a renovated or new building or a green building. Um, but that, what's interesting is those things are difficult to change. Once a building is built, it's hard to change out the flooring or the, or the walls. But so what I'm looking at now is really look at the consumer products we use in our buildings, and that's what's exciting because by just changing our products, we can really reduce our exposure to pollutants. And it's Chris KP here. Um, to what extent, and a lot of, a lot of the um, effort to make homes more green is about stopping the, the flow of heat energy and, and air carrying heat energy in and out of the buildings. To what extent is ventilation uh, influencing this? Well, this is a very important point because um, there's the old adage that the solution to dilution is pollution, but actually <laughs> the solution to pollution is not to pollute in the first place. <laughs> sure. uh, you know, what we're finding is that the very airtight, energy-efficient building with reduced ventilation is making the indoor air quality problem worse. Because we have these building materials, manufactured wood products, furnishings, paints and carpets and floorings emitting into the indoor environment, and then you've got reduced ventilation, which is really creating a, a compounded problem. At the same time, you have these fragrance products, like these air fresheners, and I should say that air fresheners are not designed to clean or disinfect your fresh in the air. They actually just mask a problem. So you've got air fresheners, uh, air fresheners and cleaning products with these fragrances and they are trapped inside too so these energy efficient air type buildings are making the indoor air quality problem worse mm. and one of the things that I, I find interesting when we talk about health and these sorts of things is if, if you were to sort of ask me about the relative merits of me having a you know a chest x-ray versus a ct scan versus a wander around chernobyl i could or an international flight i could give you specific numbers on the radiation levels that i would receive as a result of those various things and the relative 
risk. How does this sort of problem of air quality stack up to other things like smoking and drinking and the other major health risks that we see in society, sugar, etc.? I mean, where, where does it sit? the major health risk is considered to be at top five easily, and some studies have said it's the number one. If you look at it this way, that most of our exposure to hazardous pollutants that affect our health occurs indoors, but our indoor environments are essentially unregulated and unmonitored. Mm-hmm. These hazardous air pollutants are regulated outdoors, but they're not regulated indoors. And so we have very little information, if any, on the quality of our indoor air environment. So, and is the, I mean, what's the best advice for people around this? Just get out more and go for a walk? I mean, uh, it's hard to avoid some of these environments that we work in and we live in, but presumably we can, we can just try and get out as much as possible, right? Well, that's not really a solution. You know, I thought they really have to spend less time indoors because people go indoors for to work and mm. to live. They're considered to be our safe environment. We really have to look at the problems. How do we make healthier indoor environments? And that's the good news, and that's what my research looks at. It's not that difficult. You know, you just choose products that aren't high emitters, and you go back to simple things that our grandparents used to use um, <laughs> to clean with. So I say the solution is really to focus on the inside, to think about making our indoor environments healthy, rather than saying, well, it's a problem, we're going to go outside more. Yep. And this is Jen. Your research suggests that um, we're all being exposed, depending on where we work, to a whole lot of hazardous chemicals. What health conditions uh, are out there that you would attribute to being exposed to these chemicals? You know, what sicknesses do we see in people that we that you think are a direct result of being exposed to, to hazards in the workplace? Well, I'm glad you asked me because I just conducted a national epidemiological study of Australians and looking at exposure to pollutants, particularly ones coming from fragrance consumer products. Now, mention the interest of fragrances. Fragrance is now a primary indoor air pollutant, and it's also a dominant outdoor air pollutant. It's considered to contribute more to smog than automobiles and trucks. Mm. Now, fragrance is really a complex mixture of several dozen, several hundred chemicals, and most of them are synthetic and petrochemically derived. Um, in addition, there's no law in Australia or anywhere in the world that requires it a fragrance mixture disclose any or all of its ingredients. Um, and so this is really, I found, kind of a, um, insidious, ubiquitous health problems, this issue with fragrance. So anyway, the health problems associated with these fragrance products, and the products that we looked at were air fresheners, cleaning supplies, personal care products, laundry supplies, and household items. And the types of adverse health effects were diverse. They range from migraine headaches, asthma attacks, difficulties breathing, dizziness, seizures, rashes, gastrointestinal problems, watery eyes, flu-like feelings, and fever. So like a single air pressure might cause an asthma attack in one individual and a migraine headache in another. So these types of chemicals, even at very, very low levels, can cause a range of serious and oftentimes disabling health effects. Mm. The interesting thing is there, Anne, is the, the groups of people that you're talking about, especially migraine and asthma sufferers, make up a very large proportion of our population. Exactly. And that's I also did a study I found that over fifty percent of asthmatics have an asthma attack or another type of respiratory difficulty when exposed to fragrance products. And it seems like a much simpler approach just to reduce exposure than to just say, Well, we have to give them more medication. Mm. So are you hoping your work will sort of inform policy here? Is that the um, the target or are you going after sort of more an industry approach of, of getting them to produce more appropriate products? What's the direction for getting change? Well, it has to be a, a three-pronged attack in unison. One is the public, and that's where my science comes in. I think public needs to know what they're being exposed to and what they can reduce 
do to reduce their exposure and improve their health. The other part is governments and policy is making them aware of the problem and that there's really a disproportionate uh, amount of health risk associated with our indoor environments. And then there's also industry. You know, when consumers start to demand healthier products and healthier indoor environments, industry will come along as well. Mm. And look, it's a really interesting area and uh, one that I think uh, for those of us who do know people who uh, you know, have asthma and migraine problems, we're very aware of that this is something that can trigger those, those attacks quite severely. Um, good luck with the ongoing work. Hopefully there'll be some significant change in it. And it is actually quite stunning to hear that uh, there are no regulations around what's in fragrance products and so forth. So uh, keep, keep up what you're up to and hopefully we'll see some modification in policy coming out in the near future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Great to talk to you, Anne. That was uh, Professor Anne Steinman. She's a Professor of Civil Engineering and Chair of Sustainable Cities in the Department of Infrastructure Engineering at the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a break, folks, for a little bit of music, and we'll be back with our new segment, which we put at the end because uh, of all our great guests today. So uh, we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I wanted to tell you about Steve. Uh, so, who's my, Steve? My best mate, Steve? Uh, well, maybe, but probably not yet. Okay. So the story is that uh, if you've ever been... Have you ever seen an aurora? Oh, I really Rich. want to. It's on my same, bucket same. list. Yes, same as yeah. When are we going? Can we have a trip? Uh, well, you have to go far. Let's go to Tasmania. Yeah. yeah. Or Iceland. Um, you know, what's the budget looking like at Triple R? No, there's a, there's a really good... Uh, there's a lady on Twitter that I follow. I can't remember her name right now. but um, And she gives out uh, weather reports, space weather reports. And she often alerts you when there's a potential aurora. And I send that to my good friend Terry yes. in Tasmania. I go, go out the back door. And on a number of occasions, she's gone out and seen aurora as a result. That's it's really cool. cool. Yeah. I think That's we cool. need a team trip. I think it's particularly cool trip. that you've got a friend called Terry from Tasmania. It's <laughs> uh, my favourite. That's what I'm taking home from that. She story. makes peanut butter. They produce peanut butter. Her family is. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I hate oh, peanut butter. Really? It's a shame. I like butter, but um, not peanuts. Do you like peanuts? Do you like no, peanuts? no. no it's <laughs> where the peanuts are the problem there. <laughs> I don't want to diagnose everything, but it seems like the peanuts <laughs> the real problem. <laughs> we'll ask the idiot guys. Yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, so Steve, there's a yeah, there's a phenomenon, and basically, if you imagine a roar, so you imagine the shimmery, beautiful lights, mm. which are sort of that blue and green as a rule. Um, Sometimes, at least with the um, the aurora borealis in the north, they, they've noticed this other phenomenon, which is basically not shimmery. It's a, like a really narrow ribbon of mm. light, just sort of a, a much lighter, a whiter light, zooming straight up through the sky. Kind of like lasers. Like of. like lasers? Yes, a bit like <laughs> like natural laser. Anyway, um, and they they're massive. They can get up to a thousand k's long, so they, they're Whoa. really significant. Yeah. Whoa. Um, Anyway, so and this has been known for decades. So, sort of the sky watches, the amateur um, yeah, uh, aurora watches, some at somewhere, someone decided, let's call it Steve. I'm not totally <laughs> clear as to why, but I love it. I well, think the, that's great. Yeah, but the amateur, you know, the, it's both in my boat face all over again. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, you yeah. Know, what, so you this is now a the thing. Main people remember. So amongst that community, they know about Steve, which yeah. is this zoomy light thing that appears with the aurora. I wish they'd yeah. call it Larry. Well, this, this is one of the southern one. The southern one can be Larry if you want. But this is one of the problems, isn't it? You know, like I, I was just saying, I'm giving this talk tomorrow at the school on astronomy, and I'm going to tell them, you know, that after New Horizons goes past Pluto, it's going to MU69. <laughs> I want to say something different. MU69. Like, Tatooine. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you but, say it and see if anything well, pick see, it up? See if they pick it up. Yeah. Uh, there'll probably be a few parents and there's parents in this audience, <laughs> that's so they'll good. probably that'll, pick it up. Oh, but but you know, like we, we've got to get better at these yeah, names. Totally. I think we do. But well, on the other hand, if you you find the opportunity to leave it in the hands of 
us, you know, the punters, oh, yeah. if you like, and then you'll let it happen. You don't need to burden the, the scientists yeah. with the need to do this. The, the problem is on the one occasion where we've done that, we got Bodie McBoatface. Yes, I think so, what's your problem with Bodie McBoatface? Well, I'm just, I personally <laughs> love it. I personally love it. But the problem is, is the more, um, shall we say, stuffy members of our society um, have looked at that name and said, no, you know what I no reckon? that's not appropriate. I reckon if you, if you just laid, laid it open like that, evolution would take care of this because there would only be so many Starry McStarfaces. <laughs> Nineteen, you back in the same problem. They'd realised it's not doing it. You know, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Maybe. Anyway, so the story Steve. is that so the scientists, of course, wanted to find out what is this thing, this this mm. phenomenon that everyone else knows about that we didn't. Um, and so they started studying it. And to cut a long story short, there was a study earlier this year in March where they, they sort of looked at it and went, "Yeah, it's a real thing." Tick. Um, it appears to be part of the uh, the aurora. They have in, in late August this year published another paper uh, in the Journal of Geophysical Research Letters where what? they said. Yep. Mm, no, it's actually not part of the aurora. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. This is the interesting thing. Yeah, so they're now saying they believe that it is some kind of process in the ionosphere, which is up 80 to 1,000-odd mm. Ks over the surface, but not actually part of the, uh, of the mag- magnetosphere, which is mm. above that, which is where the aurora happens. So what is it? They don't know. Interesting. This is the first cool thing. But the other thing that I so that for people out there who want to know, you know, want to look at this stuff, go and find it because Steve is undescribed. We know what mm. it is. We know awesome. where it is. We don't know why it is. Yeah. However, the researchers couldn't stop there, could they? Though, so when they published this paper, um, this most recent one, they kept Steve as the name. <laughs> they did not try and fight the public on this. They it. kept Steve, but they couldn't leave it at that. They decided that it's an acronym standing. <laughs> oh yeah. no! Yeah, they renamed it uh, an acronym, which means Strong Thermal Emission Velocity Enhancement, but it's still called Steve. I'm that so acronym glad. just doesn't make any sense at all. Exactly. Doesn't just up. That's what I see. Surely they just could have gone with Stevie McSteve face. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> really? Um, something tells me that you're not going to be in charge of naming shit in the future, Dr. Jim. <laughs> but something tells me that if you are, we'll know. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> no, they'll all be so cliche by then. I'll think of something better. Think of something better? Yeah. Uh, I'm almost afraid to ask, but what news have you got, madam? <laughs> well, I'm talking about Larry. No, I'm not talking about Larry. Um, do you guys remember a month or so ago, Dr Ewan did a story all about the microbiome? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's really interesting stuff. It's become such a buzzword. Everyone's mm. talking about it. So the microbiome, essentially, we're talking about all those live bacteria that, you know, live inside us. Mm. If we're talking the gut microbiome, we're talking about the ones that live in our gut that help us to digest food, you know, essentially keep us healthy. Mm. Um, and one of the key messages that's been out there in the media for a long time now has been that we need to or not we need to but it would be a good idea to supplement our natural gut bacteria by having probiotics so you can get that out of food you know lots of people now are uh, you know um, eating their sauerkraut or their kimchi or whatever or you can go to the chemist and you can buy supplements so you Mm. buy a little capsule Mm. you know or a little drink that's full of good bacteria Mm. Um, and there's been quite a lot of studies about the microbiome too but one of the things about these studies is the majority of them have looked at the bacteria in our gut only by looking at what comes out the other end. So, you know, you look at the poo samples, you work at what bacteria are there and you try and say, well, that's what's in the gut. But there's absolutely no guarantee that what comes out the other end is actually what's in the gut. Hmm. So there's Hmm. a really important couple of studies that came out this week from Israel. (laughs) Because KP and I both just thought of about 20 jokes and we've held them all back. Yeah, you held them back. Mine got stuck. There was a bottleneck on the way out. I'm amazed. I even paused to allow you guys to bring out the poo jokes. I feel like I've let you down there. Sorry. You have. You've got a little bit... um, 
Joke constipated. Keep going. <laughs> You've got a couple more minutes. So. <laughs> anyway, they, these studies came out of Israel this week. They were published in Cell. And the first study was they gave a group of people, half of them they gave probiotics to and half of them they gave a placebo to. Mm. And then instead of looking at the poo samples, they actually got quite invasive and they did um, colonoscopies and endoscopies to sample the stomach and the intestines to see what was actually going on in there. Um, and they looked at before the treatment and after the treatment and basically what they found is found out is that the way um, probiotics probiotics are taken on by people's bodies is completely individual. Mm. And for the vast majority of people who are popping probiotic pills or drinks, the bacteria are just passing straight out. They're not colonising the gut in any way, shape or form. So they're just going straight through. So there's some people who are called the um, the persisters and they're the ones that actually get some colonisation yep. from these new bacteria. But most people are actually what's called resistors, which means nothing is happening. Resistors so are doing it for themselves. Resistors are just saying, well, you can pop the pill and it'll all just come out the other end. So that was the first part of the study. Um, and, and the important thing is to know you cannot predict easily which of those two categories yep. you're you fit are. into. Yeah. yeah. You don't know who you are. You mm. don't know if you're a resistor or a persister. Mm. But the second part of the study, I think, mm. was more interesting because one of the messages that's come out is that uh, when we take antibiotics, it kills all our gut bacteria. The best way to recolonize with good, healthy bacteria is to take a whole lot of probiotics. So they had a study. Ah, okay. They divided people into three groups. They gave all of them the same course of antibiotics. One group, they then immediately got to take a commercial probiotic. Uh-huh. One group, they got to do nothing. And one group, they gave um, a transplant of their own healthy bacteria from prior to taking the antibiotics and the important thing was that if you take commercial probiotics having taken antibiotics so basically your own antibi- your own um, bacteria has all been completely yes. you know nuked by yes, the yes. antibiotics so now yes the, pro- the probiotics um, colonize well. your system they do really well they take over yeah, no but, it competition. Takes, but it takes up to six months to get your own wow. healthy bacteria back so it's bad it's really bad yeah. so basically what they're saying is you are far better to do absolutely nothing yeah. after taking antibiotics well, what about taking your own to ones take. so taking your own ones is best so if yeah. you're happy okay. to set up a system whereby you can culture your own bacteria your own and have a <laughs> transplant a fecal <laughs> transplant okay. all well and good if you're yep. not willing or able to do that you are better to do nothing than to take probiotics off does, the shelf it does yes. sound like a startup to me really so and the other thing that came out of this study really importantly is that you know these poo samples give really no indication of what's going on in your gut so there's no point in going and having your stools tested and having them tell you what's going on in your in your um gut because there's really no correlation there well that's fun so i wanted to uh just quickly finish the show by talking about light sails so these are this is the idea of you know sailing with light out Mm. in space so you put a little craft up that has like something like a sail on a ship and you'd shine a high-powered laser from earth at that thing to accelerate it now thoughts are if you do this effectively enough you could get up to something like 20 percent of the speed of light now if you think about yeah so these are relativistic speeds so if you think of our closest star you know proxima centauri being about um four light years away Mm -hmm. that would mean it would take you know do your maths there one one fifth blah 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 about 20 years to get a craft to Mm. to the centauri system which is really interesting and we could do some fun stuff there because there's Mm. a potentially habitable planet there that's pretty quick really pretty quick the problem is of course making these things so one idea is that you know what you need to do is make something that's very large as a sail but very very thin Mm. you also need something that will absorb so the light has to hit the sail and most of it has to bounce off so so it has to be so that's momentum transfer so it has to be a reflective surface but it also remember not all of it gets reflected so some of 
fabric gets absorbed. So it also has to be something that gives off heat. So this, the material has to be something that gives off heat very efficiently as well. And you think, well, ha- you know, what one material does so both of those things? So a highly conductive, thin, light. Yeah, thing. you know, nanometer thick. And so this doesn't, you know, these materials are few and far between. In fact, there's, there's nothing that really does that. People have tried making super thin aluminium and so forth. But there's some interesting work going on now, um, and this has come out of the California Institute of Technology by a group that have been looking, and it's sort of published this year, uh, week in Nano Letters. So they've been looking at these really, really thin materials, optical materials, that are essentially sandwiches of two things. So one of the things that's really interesting is that if you take um, – so the difference between silicon, which is sort of in your phones, and silica, which mm-hmm. is glass, silicon is um, a higher refractive index material and silica is a somewhat lower refractive index material. One of them um, will bounce the light off quite well and the other will uh, ah, uh, give ah, out um, infrared radiation quite well. And so if you would take a sandwich of these two materials, which actually we do really well mm-hmm. um, and make it super thin and super strong, you could actually achieve both of these Very goals nice. with this one sort of sandwich material and it would be ultra thin and potentially, uh, you know, a candidate for this sort of mm. uh, this sort of sail technology. So it's interesting, you know, we've been talking, you've probably heard about solar sails in science fiction stories for literally, you know, 50 or so mm. years or more now. Um, but the technology required to actually make one, make it thin enough, make it strong enough, have it reflect, have it give out heat in an efficient way is not something we've been able to do. So this new work from um, Caltech is really interesting because it takes existing materials we know really, really well and says we might be able to use these for solar sailing. So anyway, cool stuff. Maybe, uh, you know, we won't be talking about Pluto next time, you know, mm-hmm. in 20 years when I'm still on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing, uh, Shane? Of course yeah, you're going to you know, be. Uh, they're going to carry me out in the box. Anyway, uh, you're not that uh, old yet. Not that old yet. Dr. Jane, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, mate. Have a good one. Chris KP, good to see you as always. Likewise, likewise, I'm sure. Liv has been doing our Twitter feed and we Woo-hoo! have more followers now than Charlie Sheen, she tells me, Which, um, but that may be because he's fall from grace. Probably <laughs> uh, <laughs> not the best actually. comparison. <laughs> not the best comparison. used to be good. Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again next week. Have a fantastic Sunday, folks, and uh, keep listening to Triple R. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.